Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Jay. I'm one of the producers on the show Darts and Letters. We're a weekly show about the politics of ideas. But before Darts and Letters, there was a more sporadic documentary series called Cited. That's why our little company is called Cited Media. That's cited as in citations, the academic sense. Today, as part of our Ideas in Strange Places theme for the week, we're broadcasting an episode of Cited from 2016. It's called Exiled in America, and it's about the lives of sex offenders in the USA. The researcher in this story actually went and lived with sex offenders, so it's a fascinating insight into life with some of the most reviled people in the country. This is the last of our Ideas in Strange Places theme. Next week, our theme is The Politics of Education. And we'll be running episodes from our catalogue with a different theme each week until we launch the new season of Darts and Letters on September the 18th. For now, though, here's Cited, Exiled in America. This episode of Cited is going to focus on people who have committed sexual offences. So you're going to hear frank language about violence and sexual assault. We tried to keep most of those details to a minimum, but still you should know that this could be triggering. And it's probably not for small children. So when you have nothing, what do you do? You do what you know best. If you're a sex offender, you're going to go out and re-offend sexually. Why? Because you have no other options. You can't get your life together. You can't get a place to live. You can't eat. You can't drink. So why not do something to go back to jail? I'm Gordon Kaddick, and this is Cited. This season, we've been talking a lot about the question of what makes an expert trustworthy. Why would regular people be skeptical of scientists? I think a lot of the skepticism comes from the fact that Sometimes scientists seem to live in a kind of different world. They have their own idiosyncratic language, their community, and their procedures. And so when they go out and talk to people who aren't scientists, sometimes there's a kind of culture clash. A lot of cited stories have gone this way. No more so than this one. Back in 2016, we did this story in partnership with CBC's The Doc Project and the University of Washington's Center for Human Rights. It's the story of a pretty unusual group of researchers and the people they study, sex offenders. I went to Boston to meet the researchers who have dedicated their lives to understanding the most reviled members of our society. My co-host Sam Fenn picks up the story from here. Right now, we are at what seems like a pretty dull meeting. There's about a dozen researchers sitting in a hotel boardroom on the Boston waterfront. This is the Sex Offense Policy and Research Working Group. Lisa Sample is the president. And some people call her the sex offender queen. Uh, People call you the what? The sex offender queen. Who calls you that? Actually, a lot of registered citizens. (laughs) 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 They, They believe I'm in some way there. Their, their queen, their advocate in, in some way. And, and I often have to remind them, just like I do the general public, it's about public safety. I mean, it, Lisa says that the U.S. government's strict approach to sex offenders is not working. It's harsh, but it's not effective. 
it just it wasn't making sense I didn't understand how we could pull out a group of people and treat them so completely differently than somebody else based on so little empirical evidence today the group celebrates its 15th Twitter follower while the US is closing in on registering its one millionth sex offender and somebody suggests Maybe we should drop some balloons. We need some balloons. <laughs> right. You're the one million <laughs> People in this group spend their time conducting in-depth interviews with pedophiles and rapists. And as you can imagine, that's not easy. And maybe that's why they keep cracking off-color jokes. So I was at a wedding and someone asked what, what I did and I you know, talked about my research. And they got very offended, and they were, um, <laughs> they said, you know, they, they were, t- t- you know, talking about registration notification and residence restrictions and how these people should never go to get out of prison, and we should, ne- like, and I was like, well, we need to critique whether these things are effective, and she was like, that's not what's important. And I'm like, well, what, what is then? And she was like, why are you talking about rape at a wedding? And I was like, you asked me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm. Obviously, it's this crime that everybody is incredibly fearful of, and people do that. They do that all the time. How can you possibly talk to these people or study them? Well, they're the people you're most afraid of, right? So shouldn't we know something about them? For the rest of this episode, I'm going to tell you the story of one of these researchers. His name is Chris Dunn. A few years ago before this meeting, he was a PhD student. And he got the idea to study sex offenders, but not from a distance. He wanted to actually live with them because he wanted to find out what their lives were actually like. So he finds this rundown motel on the other side of town and he moves into it. Just one note before we begin. According to Chris's research ethics office, he needed to change the names of everyone in his study. This is a vulnerable population, and that's just how this works. You've got to protect their anonymity in studies like this. And so we've done that too. We've used the pseudonyms that Chris used. He's changed the names of the motel, the tenants, and the town. Chris Dum is in Dutchland right now. That's a small suburban town in upstate New York. And he's driving down a major road that the papers once called Desolation Row. It's full of rundown motels. And the boardwalk is the worst one. So I pull into the parking lot, park my car. It was just like, wow, like, this is the start. Like, don't, don't screw it up. How many ways could this go wrong? He grabs his backpack from the trunk. Actually, it's more of a camping kit. So a box of Cliff Bars, Triscuits, beef jerky, trail mix. Chris is a 28-year-old Korean doctoral student. And he's a bit of a Boy Scout, frankly. I also have a paper towel roll, a bottle of hand sanitizer, a flashlight, a small Leatherman multi-tool, a box of Kleenex. Chris walks over to the office. He sees an old woman with a pit bull. They're sitting behind a plexiglass screen with a slot cut out for the rent. And she says, okay, you know, that'll be $205 for the week. In a raspy voice, she goes over the house rules. She seems 
concerned with just establishing the fact that I don't have any kids. So she asked me that a few times. You, know, you don't have any kids, right? We, we can't have any kids here. And then in the upper left-hand corner above this window to the office, almost to the ceiling, there's a sex offender occupancy license. The boardwalk is a motel in name only. People live here. They don't just travel here and stay for a couple days. It's become a place that the government uses to house the homeless, the mentally ill, sex offenders, and other criminals just out of jail. But so it's, it's, it's clear that this is not your average motel. <laughs> Chris leaves the office and heads to his room, number 34. It's gross, especially the bathroom. There are bugs in the bathtub. Um, and that really sort of piqued my fear of, okay, when you turn off the lights in this room, what's going to come out? Because of that, I slept with the light on for that, that first night. The next morning, Chris wakes up and heads towards the parking lot. He sees a bunch of people just hanging outside, killing time. He makes small talk with a few of them, and then he sees this guy named Reg. And so I actually met him walking out of the parking lot, and he walked past me. And I nodded to him, and he nodded back to me, and this big guy with broad shoulders, a big red beard, very short-cut hair. He's missing some of his front teeth. Oh, no, he was very nervous when he first met me. He didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. (laughs) This is Reg. If you saw him on the sidewalk walking towards you, you might cross the street. He's this hulking Irish guy, and he has this tattoo of a pair of scissors cutting his throat. What is this for, actually? You work for a radio station? I met him in New York. CBC. CBC is like the NPR. Oh, the shit that nobody listens to. Yeah, basically. (laughs) I sit and listen as Reg and his friends light up a joint and reminisce. Reg brags about all the good fights he's had about the way he leaves people like lying on the pavement. When Paulie was giving us the trouble and freaking we went down there with the baseball bat and the cops were looking for it in my room, it was in the fucking ceiling. They couldn't find it the whole damn time. We're sitting there laughing at them. <laughs> they couldn't charge me with something if they couldn't find the freaking weapon. <laughs> Reg does pretty well for himself at the boardwalk. Maintenance men make sure his room is in good shape. Residents don't rip him off. People treat him pretty well. It's partly because they're afraid to cross him. I just don't know how to explain it, dude. I mean, I'm not trying to portray myself as a badass or a, I don't even know how to explain it, but just you have to hold your own. I mean, if you don't, people will walk over you in an environment like that. But it's also because he greases the wheels. He tells me about these cookouts that he hosts every other week. It's partly to keep people on his good side. I mean, I'd do steaks, I'd do burgers, hot dogs, sausage, pork chops, whatever I felt like buying. Price Chopper was across the road. So I'd look in their discount meat rack and whatever for the day was discounted was what I was grilling out. (laughs) Chris can see it right away. Reg is what ethnographers call a gatekeeper. A good relationship with a gatekeeper can mean a rich and detailed study. A bad relationship with a gatekeeper? There is no study. One day at the motel, Chris sees Reg hanging outside of his room. So he comes up with an excuse to approach him. He says he's lost his lighter. So they gave me a light so I could light a cigarette, and they said, you can, you can hang out. And I said, you know, I don't want to bother you. And, you know, Reg specifically said, like, if we didn't want to be bothered, we wouldn't be outside here, like we'd be inside our rooms. And then from there, I introduced myself, 
And I told him that I was doing a study at the motel and wanted to talk to people about their stories and what it was like to live there. And he said, oh, I heard of you. You know, so he, he told me that he heard, you know, who I was and what I was there to do. This is the line that he's been feeding everyone. Chris says he wants to do a book on motel life. What Chris hasn't mentioned to Reg or anyone yet is that he's in a criminal justice program, that he wants to talk to ex-cons and sex offenders. I wasn't more forthright originally because I didn't want people to think that I was some sort of law enforcement agent or cop. Reg hands Chris a beer and they go outside to drink. Just as they sit down, this guy Steve walks past. Steve is a mentally ill veteran living at the motel. He's a chain smoker who wears the exact same thing every day a stained shirt, and sweatpants. And I mean, I don't know how the system ended up letting him live on his own, but this man was incapable to live on his own. He should have been in a mental health institution or something. I mean, he couldn't dress himself. He couldn't freaking bathe himself. You'd have to force him to bathe. This guy wouldn't shower for weeks on end, and then he'd want a cigarette from me. So I'd tell him, I'll give you half a pack of cigarettes. Go get in the shower. Reg notices that Steve's toes are sticking through his torn-up boots. He actually went into his room and then came out with a pair of large black boots and gave them to Steve and said, you know, these are brand new fucking boots here. It's like, here, dude, take these. You need them more than I do. (laughs) He's surprised when he sees Reg taking care of Steve in this way. But over time, Chris sees this kind of thing more and more. People inside the boardwalk desperately depend upon each other because it seems like they don't have too many people to depend on outside the boardwalk. Reg tells Chris that his parents recently died that he doesn't have a job, that the only way he makes ends meet is by selling weed and bartering with people at the motel. Chris is taking notes. This is all good stuff for his thesis. But what he doesn't know is that Reg is running his own kind of investigation. Sometimes people consider me rude and an asshole because of it, because I believe in the truth 100%. And if you don't like the truth, then you know where you can freaking go. Um, No, I just blatantly asked him. I said, what the hell? Are you a fucking cop? (laughs) Chris has had a couple of drinks at this point, so maybe it's partly liquid courage, but he finally summons up the courage to just come right out and say it. I'm not just here to research motel life. I'm here to study criminals. Reg is sitting there looking at me, and he spreads his arms open wide, and he says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. It was criminal psychology. And I told him, I said, well, I want to talk to sex offenders, and I'd like... I'd like to get to know how they reintegrate into society. And he looks at me and he says, who do you think you've been talking to all this time? Chris didn't for a second suspect that Reg is a sex offender, but he is. He's an angry, tattoo-covered, bat-wielding sex offender who wants to know why he's been lied to. Chris apologizes profusely. He tries to explain, but Reg says, no, not now. Let's talk when we're sober. As Chris is walking towards the door, Reg leaves him with a threat. He told me that, you know, I'm the bull around this place and you shouldn't forget that. I was convinced at this point that the study was over. And my girlfriend at the time, I actually called her to come pick me up from the motel because I just couldn't handle it. I thought this was like the end. And I was incredibly emotional. I remember coming home, getting out of the car in my apartment, just crying. Chris doesn't spend every night at the boardwalk. So let's talk about what life is like outside the boardwalk. I'm standing here in a giant park. 
next to a gazebo and a large playground. This is the kind of place you'd want to raise a family. The boardwalk is in a town we're calling Dutchland. Remember, we've changed the names of everything here. If you've been picturing an urban ghetto this whole time, that's not quite right. Dutchland is more like a quaint village. Recently, it was ranked one of the safest communities in all of America. And the town of Dutchland thinks of the boardwalk as a blight. It's always in the papers, the TV stations, and in all the call-in radio shows. People say they want it demolished. And I think so much of public sentiment is based on the fact that people really don't understand people who, who are affected by, by criminal justice or are affected by social structure in ways that sets them down paths that we would consider deviant or wrong. So I, th- I think for me as a scholar, I want to bring the voices and experiences of people who might otherwise be marginalized or stereotyped and show them as three-dimensional human beings. There are motels like this all across America. And Chris says going around closing them down is the exact wrong way to go about it. It would only scatter the problem. He says what the government needs to do is go to these places and actually provide re-entry support because a lot of the people there are coming out of prison. But Chris thinks a part of the reason why we don't support those kinds of policies is because of the label sex offender. It reduces people to just their crime and it condemns them to a life without support or safe housing. And if anything, that only makes them more likely to reoffend. So Chris hopes this project will show people that so that they might endorse better policies. I think that to me, that's that's my mission. If I can do that and do it in a way that's that's accessible to people outside the discipline and get, get, get someone who maybe has thought about things one way to read a book and say, wow, I, I, I didn't realize how human these people are. I didn't realize what they were doing or what the system does to them. If Chris can explain that to Reg, maybe he'll win him over. So he goes back to the boardwalk with a book. And I bring him a copy of this ethnography called Tally's Corner, which is a classic, classic ethnography. This is, you know, the type of work that I want to do. Chris explains that Tally's Corner is a famous example of participant observation. That's where the researcher immerses themselves in the world that they're studying, and they actually become a part of it. Then they can really show what that world is like. But for Chris to pull this off, Reg has to let him in. And, and at that time, he told me, OK, you want to see my world? I want to see your world. So bring me to campus. Like, show me what you do. Convince me that you are who you say you are. And that was, a total, in my mind, a totally reasonable request. So they get in a car and drive over to Chris's world, the university. Reg chain smokes the whole ride over. He's never really been on a campus at all, aside from maybe some, some parties when he was younger, and he's really, you know, nervous and uncomfortable. Remember, this is Reg, the guy who laughs at police officers and beats people up with baseball bats. But these grad students in their cardigans and skinny jeans, they're freaking him out. Chris takes Reg up to his office and shows him some academic journals. And he looks at them and he says, okay, you know, now I have a better idea of what you do, and I believe that you're actually really a student. So at this point, I feel, okay, you know, I'm I'm making some progress. You know, this is pretty good. Then Chris introduces Reg to his supervisor. This is the person that's been overseeing the whole project. And at this time, things really change, and Reg just sort of takes over. Calling him out on his bullshit. (laughs) Basically, you know, busting my chops. 
and I was just telling him how much of an idiot he was being when he first showed up trying to hide and sneak in and freaking <laughs> and tried it just feels like okay this is this is basically the red show right now trying to freaking be something he wasn't and then wanting people to give him information about things and I was now, if they're looking at me I can't really tell because I'm not really looking at them <laughs> there's not really much for me to say or even for for my advisor to say except except to sort of nod and affirm his position as being way smarter than me in this instance, because that's that's what he's doing. As hard as it was to sort of stand there and listen to him just, you know, lay into me and call me out, it gave Reg a chance to to say his piece, to, to tell me that, you know, okay, I understand where you're coming from. I don't want to be just someone who is a research subject in the study. Like, I want us to be friends. I want us to spend time with each other after this is done. This transforms their relationship. Reg even opens up to Chris about his sexual offense. He tells him that when he was 18, he had a relationship with a 15-year-old girl. That's statutory rape. And so he spent a year in prison. Even though New York State only considers this a low-level sex offense, it's had a pretty big impact on Reg's life. He was kicked out of his last apartment when the landlord found out that he's a sex offender. The world of the motel changed after that experience with Reg. He's gotten the chance to see what I'm about. He can vouch for me now. So he's actually introducing me to people at the motel, you know, telling them, you know, this is Chris. He's a good kid. Essentially recruiting people to participate. Reg shows Chris more of the world of the boardwalk. And Chris meets petty criminals and people who are just homeless. He meets the mentally ill and the addicted. He meets people who have suffered from intense trauma and abuse. They all have different issues, but what they seem to share in common is that they're ashamed of living in the boardwalk. It was always on the news that, oh, this sex offender did this, this sex offender did that. They all live at this place. So if you're local, this place held a definite stigma. This is Daryl. He's one of the nine people who were convicted of sexual offenses that Chris speaks to while at the boardwalk. A lot of people protested all the time about this place. They would actually do protests out front. People would drive by and throw bottles, uh, scream at people, all kinds of stuff in the middle. Daryl is a middle-aged Hispanic man. He spent 18 years in prison for raping an eight-year-old boy. But he vehemently denies it. Chris doesn't really take a position on whether or not Daryl did it. As disturbing as it is, it's not really why Chris is here. Chris is curious about what life is like after the conviction. Well, like I said, he reacted very well. He didn't take it like he didn't see the grinch on his face. He didn't see any of that. So Daryl tells Chris that he's considered a higher risk offender than Reg. So his name is on a public registry and he has strict residency restrictions. He can't live within a thousand feet of a school or park. So that means he can't live with family members who live in better parts of town. So it's just the motels. And the boardwalk was the only one with an empty bed. It's either this or jail. And this is very depressing. It's tough. And there was a lot of people that came here that didn't have nothing. And they'd have to start from scratch. No clothes, no money, no job, no transportation, no anything. And you wonder why they all fail. Daryl hates it at the boardwalk. He wants to complain to the building inspectors, but his parole officer tells him in no uncertain terms, if you do that, I'll throw you back into jail. 
So he's trapped with no support. So when you have nothing, what do you do? You do what you know best. If you're a sex offender, you're going to go out and reoffend sexually. Why? Because you have no other options. You can't get your life together. You can't get a place to live. You can't eat. You can't drink. So why not do something and go back to jail? It's winter now. Chris has been at the boardwalk for almost six months. And he says he's actually kind of been enjoying himself. As tough as the motel is, there's lots of good times here. But at the boardwalk, the good times always seem to turn bad. Like at Reg's birthday party. They had a fridge full of jello shots. Um, there was a keg, actually. Sky made really good pasta salad, so there was pasta salad, a tuna salad there. They also had gotten a bunch of subs from the local grocery store and cut them up. So he really sort of went all out for this party. There's 20 people packed into this tiny motel room. The party's going well, but then this guy Toby shows up. There's bad blood here. Toby starts yelling at Reg, disrespecting him in front of everybody. And in a situation like the motel, respect is paramount. And in this situation, disrespected at this party, conceivably then many people know about this slight, so he has to do something to reassert his dominance. Because without that, he doesn't have anything of value at the motel anymore. Reg wants Toby out of the party. But Chris says he can't just call the police. If he did that, he would lose his status as the bull. There's only one way Reg can deal with this and still maintain his status. He gets right up into Toby's face. And Reg starts calling on people to beat Toby. I threatened to stab him. Beat his ass, beat his ass, beat this fucking punk. And they start grappling and they tussle. I grabbed him by his freaking neck. He throws him. Toby smashes into Reg's sister-in-law. They fly into the cake. Frosting flies everywhere. And he ended up somehow on the floor with my thumb through his eye socket. This guy looks at me, he's like, that shit is fucked up. And this other guy's like, the party is over. So the police show up, as does an ambulance, and Toby's on a stretcher because Reg did try to poke his eye out. The ambulance drives Toby away. Reg is upstairs, picking cake off his sister-in-law. Yeah, we ate it off her. Kept picking it off of her hair. It was still, hey, she's clean. Food's clean. Well, whatever, it's family. <laughs> if you can't eat cake off of them, what they're good for. So you use this story to kind of say that partly the motel is to blame. But why, why is the motel to blame? Why isn't this just Reg being a jerk? There's really no other form of conflict mediation that exists at this motel. The idea is that you just handle problems between you and the other person. You know, you're not going to go to the desk office. You're not going to call the cops. It's going to be you and me figuring this out. And because respect is so important, no one wants to back down. And why Reg isn't just being a jerk here is because in other, in other situations among other people who have more resources, there are other ways to solve conflict. Christmas comes a few weeks later. Reg does not take this day well, not since his parents died. And he's still fuming about the fight. So Reg is drinking himself senseless. And he's walking downstairs towards Toby's room, holding a knife. Somebody calls the police. They come and they take Reg to jail. He'll spend the next six months in prison. Reg is in prison while Chris is at home turning his notes into a thesis. A few months later, he sees the motel on the news. 
They say somebody fell through the floor. Continuing coverage now in the Problem Motel. Investigators went room by room after they tell us they had received several complaints recently about code violations at the motel. That's a hole in the floor. I fell through it. Unsecured heaters, no heat in the rooms. If you can think of a violation, it was there. Showing rooms in filth. Some desperate residents were actually being The town finally does something. They send inspectors in and find hundreds of code violations. Dutchland makes an announcement. We're shutting this down. It's January 2014, and Chris goes back to the boardwalk for its final day. I, obviously, it was something I needed to observe and see, because this is basically the end. This is the end of the boardwalk. This is the end of, motel, of the motel. I mean, the town was getting their wish. There are nine people left. And on this cold winter day, they're huddled in the manager's office. So people were just very confused about what's going to happen. So this is woman, Sarah, and she's, you know, she's like, my husband now has to get an advance on his work paycheck so he can go get a moving van so we can move out to another motel. So she's just praying that that's going to happen. There are other people who just don't know where they're going. This is one guy, Dusty, who's just drinking beer. That's sort of his coping, his coping mechanism. Chris stands in the parking lot watching as the news crews pack up their cameras and the town officials drive home. Dutchland gives two more days to the people who can't find a new place. But this is it for the boardwalk. It'll eventually be demolished. I felt horrible for people. Just the way this all occurred was just a a, a tragedy. It made me really upset. It made me really mad that conditions at the motel could have gotten to this point. And it took so long for people to become aware of it. And then finally when it happened, the only the only recourse was to shut this motel down in the dead of winter. And to me, it just seems like a, a failure on all fronts. It's been years since Chris left the boardwalk. The town finally demolished it. But Chris and Reg are still close friends, and he keeps in touch with Daryl, too. Daryl hasn't re-offended sexually. One of the people that Chris met did, but for the most part, Chris says he's just not sure where people ended up. He lost track of them. Chris is now a professor at Kent State University. His thesis turned into a book, Exiled in America. He hopes it'll start a conversation about housing and re-entry policies for people coming out of prison. Chris still finds himself thinking about the boardwalk, especially when he looks at his cat, Ellie. One of the residents gave Chris this cat as they were being evicted. They asked him to take care of it, so Chris adopted it. Ellie, where else? And I see her actually tell her sometimes, like, you used to live in a motel. Like, you used to live in this in this place. And it's sort of this odd thing because it's like, wow, okay, so she used to live there. And then, like, when she's running around my house and stuff like that, I'm like, and sitting in the windows and and she doesn't have fleas or, or you know, or worms or anything anymore. And I'm like, you know, you were able to get out in a way. <laughs> this piece was produced by me, Gordon Caddick, 
and edited by Sam Fenn, as well as Allison Cook from CBC's The Doc Project. Further support from Alexander Kim. We also had research advising from University of Washington sociologist Catherine Beckett. Exiled originally aired in November 2016. It was part of a collaboration between Cited, CBC's The Doc Project, and the University of Washington's Center for Human Rights. Both the University of Washington and the CBC partly supported the production costs. We also had funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Cited's executive producers are me, Gordon Caddick, and Sam Fenn. David Tobias is our production manager. If you like what you heard, do us a favor. Give us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. Cited is produced out of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto. That's on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. It is also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Thanks for listening. Tune in next Wednesday, May 6th for our latest new episode of The Sighted Season.